who wants to know the truth, the real truth, about Dad's life. For ten years I shared my life with a man who was a huge figure in his lifetime, and who has become a legend since his death. Through the years in which the Beatles came together and went on to delight and astound the world, I was with him, sharing the highs and lows of his public and private lives. Since John's death, I've watched shelves full of books come and go, most by people who never knew him and who painted a one-sided, flawed picture of him and our relationship. Many consigned me to a brief walk-on part in John's life, notable only because we had a son. I was usually dismissed as the impressionable young girl who fell for him, then trapped him into marriage. That was a long way from the truth. I was at John's side throughout the most exciting, extraordinary, and eventful ten years of his life. It was a time when he was at his creative best, a time when he was witty, passionate, honest, and open, when he loved his family and loved the Beatles, a time before drugs and fame led him toward the destruction of so much that he had valued. After my marriage to John fell apart, I tried to escape the world of celebrity and the Lennon label by going off to find my own life. I wanted security for our son and a life that was real and purposeful, out of the limelight. Both my privacy and my dignity were important to me, so I preferred to let others do the talking. Now the time has come when I feel ready to tell the truth about John and me, our years together and the years since his death. There is so much that I have never said, so many incidents I have never spoken of, and so many feelings I have never expressed. Great love on one hand, pain, torment, and humiliation on the other. Only I know what really happened between us, why we stayed together, why we parted, and the price I paid for having been John's wife. The late fifties was a wonderful time to be young and setting out in the world. The grim days of the war and post-war deprivation were over. National service had been lifted and teenagers were allowed to be youthful and unafraid. It was as though the grey austerity of the forties had been replaced by a brilliant spectrum of opportunities and possibilities. Britain was celebrating survival and freedom and the time was ripe for dreams, hopes, and creativity. I started at Liverpool College of Art in September 1957. I had just turned 18 and could hardly believe my luck. A year earlier, my father had died after a painful battle with lung cancer. My two older brothers had left home, and my mother and I had little money. Before he died, Dad, who was desperately worried about providing for us, told me that I wouldn't be able to go to college. I'd have to get a job and help Mum. I promised I would, 
but it was hard to accept that my college hopes were at an end. Mum said nothing at the time, but she knew how much college meant to me, and after Dad's death she said, You go to college, love, we'll manage somehow. She took in lodgers to make ends meet. When I got into college, I set out to be a model student. I turned up promptly every day, neat in my best twin sets and tweed skirts, with my pencil sharpened, ready to be the hardest working girl in the place. My dream was to be an art teacher. Art was the only subject I'd ever liked at school, and I was thrilled when at the age of twelve I got into the junior art school, which was down the street from the art college. It was there that I became best friends with a girl called Phyllis Mackenzie. We planned to go on to college together, but Phil's father refused to let her go and insisted she get a job. She had to settle for evening classes in life drawing after spending the day working as a commercial artist for a local corn merchant. Most of us starting college then had been born just before or during the war. In my case, a week after war was declared. My parents both came from Liverpool, but at the outbreak of war, they decided to leave the city for the relative safety of the Wirral across the Mersey in Cheshire. They moved with me and my brothers, Charles, then eleven, and Tony, eight, to a two-bedroom, semi-detached house in a small seaside village called Hoylake. My father worked for the GEC, selling electrical appliances to shops, and had to travel into the city each day to make his rounds. But at home, we were away from the worst of the relentless bombing that ravaged so much of Liverpool. When the bombers flew overhead, my mother would scoop us into the cupboard under the stairs, where the force of the explosions jolted us off our seats. I grew up with rationing as a way of life. Like all the other families around us, we dug for Britain, with an allotment where we grew our vegetables and a little hen coop in the back garden. As in so many households in those days, the boys generally took precedence over the girls. When my brothers got bacon, I got the rind, and when they got scraps of meat from a bone, I got the bone to chew. It was my job to clean their shoes and help my mother look after them and dad. I was a quiet, timid child, and I accepted my role in the house as the youngest and the only girl without question. My parents were opposites in many ways, but they loved each other, and I never heard them argue. My father, also Charles, was easygoing, kind, robust, and jolly. I remember him losing his temper with me only once, when I came home from school and used a swear word. I adored him, and after I got into the junior art school, I travelled into Liverpool on the train with him, in the mornings and evenings. He used to carry a bag of sweets for his customers, and he'd slip me a couple on the way home. My mother, Lillian, was unusual for her day. She had no interest in housework and cleaned our home about once a month. The rest of the time it gathered dust. But Mum had a strong artistic streak. She always had a vase of flowers in the window, which she took pleasure in arranging. She knitted fantastic fair sweaters. Her real passion, though, was the auction rooms to which she would head every Monday to spot the latest bargains.
On Monday evenings, Dad and I would arrive home to find the front room changed. There might be a new sofa, carpet, curtains, table, or even all of them. The old ones already dispatched to the same sale rooms. We didn't mind, and it was always fun to see what she'd done. And most important, it made Mum happy. When Dad became ill at the age of 56, everything changed. Like so many others in those days, he smoked untipped cigarettes, unaware of the damage it was doing to him. When he developed lung cancer, he went downhill rapidly. His solid frame wasted away and his breathing was labored. Before long, all he could do was sit in his chair in the bedroom, where I would sit with him after school each day. After his death, only Mum and I were left, grieving for him and wondering how we would manage. Our college gave me a new focus, something to be excited about, to work for, and to take me out of our quiet little house of mourning into the world. Watching the older, more confident kids at college, I longed to be like them. I envied their casual, arty style and their long hair. I had arrived with my short, mousy hair in a neat perm, courtesy of my mother's friend who was a hairdresser. Every few weeks she would experiment, giving me a different style, but they were all ghastly, and to make things worse I wore glasses. I'd arrived at college thrilled to be rid of school uniform and pleased with my smart new clothes. But I soon felt frumpy and dull, with my matronly hair and conventional outfits. I longed to be more daring, but in those early days I didn't have the courage. To add to my problems, I was saddled with the over-the-water, posh image that Scousers had of anyone who lived across the Mersey. I spoke differently, and to them this meant I was stuck up.